Welcome to Stanford Innovation Lab. I'm Tina Seeling, Professor of the Practice in the Department of Management Science and Engineering at Stanford University. This podcast is designed to give you a taste of the topics we explore in our classes on innovation and entrepreneurship. Today's special guest is Gabe Parisiamon, co-founder and chief technical officer at Nebia. I've known Gabe since 2009 when he was a Mayfield Fellow, one of 12 students in our nine-month work-study program focused on entrepreneurship. He earned a BS and MS in mechanical engineering at Stanford and then an MBA from Harvard. He's now building a brand new type of shower at Nebia, where their focus is on beautiful design and saving water. Hello, today's special guest is Gabe Parisi Aman. I've known Gabe for a long time. Gabe, you've had an amazingly exciting path. Can you tell everyone what you've done since then? Sure. So, uh, as Tina said, I was part of the Mayfield Fellows in 2009 uh, in tandem. I was finishing up a master's uh, at Stanford in mechanical engineering. Uh, and after that, I ended up getting a one way ticket and moved to Italy. I uh, spent a couple months living with my cousin there and looking for a job. Uh, I'd always wanted to work and live abroad, and I had this opportunity after my master's to do that. Uh, and like a good Mayfield fellow, I found myself a startup in Rome. It was a four-person company. My uh, boss was an art historian with a lot of knowledge and contacts in Rome um, of the private art collections. And he gave tours and he needed someone to do everything that wasn't giving tours. So finance, marketing, uh, talking with clients, organizational, operational stuff. Um, I got to use my English and I got to learn Italian. Uh, and I was able to contribute on a lot of different fronts and wear a lot of different hats. Um, and I did that in Rome for a little over a year. I was also fortunate enough to spend some time um, about 25 hours a week in the kitchen of a, of a restaurant in a five-star hotel in Rome, uh, learning to cook. So started cutting eggplants, uh, literally have cut probably a couple tons of eggplant at this point. Um, would spend, you know, eight hours a day cutting eggplants into cubes and into strips. Uh, and work my way up. And by the end, I was working on appetizers for the dinner shift. Well, that is an obvious first step for starting a company where you're designing a new shower. Yes. How could you possibly have gone from cutting eggplants and working in a museum to then starting a new company focused on saving water? Yeah. So when I came back from Italy, I went to business school. Uh, loved the experience. Realized while I was there that I missed making physical things. I was a mechanical engineer. Uh, and after business school, I was fortunate enough to come back to the Bay Area and work for Apple uh, doing supply chain uh, and operations for the iPhone. Uh, and there I uh, got the opportunity to reconnect with the engineering side of things and fall back in love with product design. Uh, and while there, uh, I met my co-founders, actually an introduction through another Mayfield fellow, uh, Jonah. Uh, who was my mentor when I was a Mayfield fellow, he shot me an email and said, hey, I met these really great guys. They're working on a cool product. You should talk to them. And um, at the time, I was, I was really happy. We had just launched iPhone 6, and I was finally had a little time to myself. Uh, and Jonah pushed me. He's like, just meet with these guys. It'll be worth it. And I met with uh, my co-founder and at the time the CEO of um, Nebia, Philip. And we met at a cafe and we were supposed to meet for half an hour. We ended up talking for over an hour, uh, telling me about what they were trying to do, which was make a shower 
that was a better experience, more beautiful than any shower out there, and also uh, incredibly uh, water efficient. So Gabe, you meet these guys, they've got an exciting project. What inspired you about it? I mean, you were going to leave what you were doing and say, okay, fine, you know, you've got a perfectly good job, I'm going to leave and, and start this new company. That's a pretty risky thing to do. Why did you do it? Yeah, um, I'll say it, it really boiled down to standing under a prototype shower, a very early prototype shower, and knowing that I could leave to co-found a company that I truly believe could make a product that everyone in the world could use. And there's not a lot of products out there, a lot of opportunities to work on something that really everyone, no matter where they are in the world, can use. Uh, and that really called out to me. On the flip side, I've always really loved showers. Um, I solved my honors thesis in the shower. I think best in the shower. I, I can't start my day without a shower. So there was a really nice synergy there of, I think this is a product that everyone in the world could use. And I really enjoy showers. So might as well work on them. That's great. Now, it's interesting. I always love the concept of falling in love with the problem instead of falling in love with the solution, right? People who fall in love with the solution often, you know, wrestle it to the ground and it's not the right thing they should be working on. Whereas those people who fall in love with the problem um, end up being much more open to a huge range of possible ways to address it. Did you fall in love with the problem or the solution? So it's interesting. I would say my co-founders absolutely fell in love with the problem. So my other co-founder, Carlos, uh, was running a uh, public gym chain in Mexico City. It was a high-end gym chain, uh, and their biggest variable cost was water and heating the water. Uh, Mexico City is at altitude. They don't have a natural source of water, so you actually have to pump all the water in. Um, because so many people were showering today at this gym chain, 20,000, um, they actually had a truck in water every day. And uh, running these gyms, looking at the costs, Carlos realized this is a substantial uh, issue and something that there is no solution out there for. Because it was a high-end gym, they couldn't install you know, what we refer to as a low-flow showerhead. No one, was, no one would have been okay with that. Um, so he is actually a mechanical engineer as well, but his dad was a retired engineer and tinker. And one day they were having lunch at one of the clubs. And he's like, if we could find a way to make a, a shower that was more efficient, but also an incredible experience, it would be a huge opportunity for, for the club and for us. It would save us a lot of money. There's really something there. And that was the beginning of it. And at the time, this was in 2010, I think both Carlos and his father Emilio thought, oh, we'll spend maybe three or six months on this. We'll come up with something and maybe you can use it in gyms. Uh, we are now, you know, six years later and still working on our generation one product, although uh, we are six months away from delivering it, which is really exciting. Um, but it took, it took on a life of its own. And I think once they dove into the problem, which was how do you make a more efficient shower but not sacrifice a, the experience, they realized that there were a lot of ways to solve this problem but maybe not a lot of great ways. And they came to uh, early prototype, the one that I showered under, which used commercial nozzles, nozzles for other technologies um, and repurposed them for showers. And it was, that was one of the things that I found the most interesting when I was showering under this. The prototype that I showered under, there were, there were a lot of things that uh, I knew and my co-founders at the time knew that we couldn't just deliver what was that prototype to consumers, there were issues with it. But there was a real opportunity to take this commercial 
technology and apply it to this consumer product and make something completely new and different, really change the way showers were, the experience of showers and what showers were uh, in a way that hadn't been done really since plumbing was introduced into the home. Wow, this is super cool. I, I, you know, as someone who teaches classes on creativity, one of the most important aspects of creative problem solving is reframing the problem, looking at it from a really different angle to come up with some unique solutions. What was the early brainstorming process like? And how did you come up with really fresh ways of thinking about what is a shower? Yeah, so we we like to frame it, and, and Philip and I, one of my co-founders, talked early on, is what is the job that a shower is meant to do? And when you first ask a person, it's like, oh, you know, all I want is my shower to get me clean. And you think about that, and then you're like, well, there's a lot of ways to get clean. If it was just getting you clean, most people would shower for a minute or two. But when you look into it, people shower on average for eight and a half minutes, some people for a lot longer. And if all they were trying to do was get clean, uh, that would be different. And then we realized, well, the other thing people really want from a shower is a relaxing experience. They want to be warm. They want to feel, they want to feel good. Uh, and that's when we started to realize the experience of the shower was more than just, oh, it needs to clean me. It definitely needs to do that. And we always, uh, you know, front and center in our design is that ability to be clean. But we also realized like a relaxing environment is wonderful and something people really like. An embracing warm experience is something people like. And so we started to design on those metrics as well. Can you please describe the Nebbia shower? I've, I've never tried it and I've seen some videos about it. It looks pretty amazing. Can you describe it? Absolutely. Uh, and you're, you're welcome to come try it whenever you want. Um, we have one in San Francisco in our office. Um, what we do at Nebbia is atomize water. So our, our shower head takes a stream of water and atomizes it in millions of droplets. So we actually have 10 times the surface area of a regular sh- shower, even though we have less water. This, these smaller droplets envelop you. It feels like you're walking into a warm cloud uh, of water. So you're in this warm, embracing environment, but you're also getting water rushing over you. You're being rinsed. So instead of just kind of uh, a spear of water, which is what a regular shower is, it's just you know three inches in diameter and just hitting you, you're completely surrounded when you're standing under Nebbia. It feels like you know this, uh, this two square foot area that is completely embracing you with water. Very cool. We've had a lot of speakers in our Entrepreneurial Thought Leader lecture series who've talked about different aspects of product design and product development. I'm going to play you a clip from a talk from David Kelly, the founder of IDEO, and his discussion about the difference between designing products and designing experiences. And I'd love to get your thoughts on his, his insights. Um, the other thing I'd like to say that's going on in the, in the um, product design world is the move from designing products to designing experiences. So in general, for most of our lives, we design products. You know, and I spent, I had a lot of fun going in front of CEOs and you put this thing on the table with a black cloth and you pull it over and everybody says, wow, look at that. But um, the truth is that really didn't give a very good uh, indication of what the product was like or what the product was going to be like in use, right? And so now more and more we design experiences instead of designing the product itself, right? And one of the things, the byproduct of this is that we're hiring more and more videographers. Because if you think about the, the prototype of a product is this kind of thing that we make in, the, in Pearl over here in the shop, right? And, um, and model makers and people like that that we hired. But the truth is that doesn't tell you a whole lot about the product. Um, it's more interesting to see a video of the product and how it will impact its use. So in doing 
a pacemaker programmer for uh, Medtronic, um, making a movie of what the doctor-patient relationship is going to be like is much more interesting than seeing the lump of technology sitting on the table. So Gabe, how does this work for you? How do you design the experience as opposed to just the product? Absolutely. So there's actually many experiences when you buy a shower. One of them is the installation of the shower. And that's an experience we spent a lot of time thinking about. One of the things that we've done and designed around and worked very hard on is we don't want anyone to have to break tile. We want anyone to be able to buy a Nebbia shower and install it. And in order to do that, there are a lot of design constraints. So we think every day about how you receive this, how you take it out of the packaging and how you can install it um, when you receive it. You don't need to call a plumber, you don't need to call a handyman, you can do it yourself. And that's one of the experiences we care a lot about. Other experiences are obviously the showering experience. And as I mentioned um, before, the jobs to be done by a shower are not just being clean, it's also this idea of relaxing, being warm. A lot of people use the shower as the only time during the day they don't have their phone on them. They can't get emails, they can't get texts, they think they, they are mindful in the shower, and we want Nebbia to help with that. So the experience itself, everything from the sound that Nebbia makes to the way you feel when you close your eyes and stand under it is something that we think a lot about. So the angles the nozzles are, what types of nozzles we use. This is all something that we think a ton about. And also the look. You are at your most vulnerable in a shower. You're naked, you're soaking wet. It's kind of crazy to look up and see like, you know, a crazy chrome-plated piece of plastic or something that isn't warm and welcoming. That's why the materials we use, uh, both in terms of touching and feeling them and having uh, soft touch materials on the parts of the shower which you grab, but also using aluminum, something that's recyclable, something that's warm and welcoming um, in the shower versus the traditional chrome-covered plastic. So this is really cool. This resonates with what we've learned from Apple about all the attentional detail. And of course, you spent time at Apple, so I'm assuming that you've absorbed some of that philosophy. I'm going to play a short clip from Adam Lashinsky, who wrote a book about Apple, talking about their attention to detail. And I'd love to have your, your thoughts on this. Apple has made famous sweating the details. You'd think that sweating details would be something that all businesses do, but I would submit that most are bad at it. Jobs famously wanted to, was, was very concerned about the makeup of the screws on the inside of the original Macintosh, which sort of built his reputation that, well, why in the world would you care about what the screws were like on the inside that nobody was going to see? But we've come to understand that if you obsess over details like that, that leads, uh, that, that leads to excellence. Um, uh, I like to recount the story of a package design room on the Apple campus where in the early days of the iPod, before the iPod was released, a package design engineer um, spent a great deal of time with hundreds of prototype boxes making sure that the little piece of adhesive tape that closes the box was put in just the right place and this person would open and close and open and close and open and close over a period of weeks. Now this sounds like strange behavior or something that that, that might seem like a, de a detail that you could maybe let slide a little bit, unless anybody in the room in recent memory has purchased an iPhone or an iPad or an iPod, and you can remember what it felt like to open that little piece of adhesive tape and open the box, and you saw your device placed there neatly stacked on top of the literature, and you took your device out and it lifted out because there's a little spring in there, and you held it in your hand, and you felt like a better person for it. 
and you understand the attention to detail at Apple for something as mundane as a box and the adhesive tape that closes it. So what do you think about that? So coming from Apple, I completely agree. The attention to detail is something that's ingrained at Apple. And I think in every great product designer, attention to detail is what makes or breaks a great product. One of the amazing things about being in 2016 and Apple being so mainstream is you can point to that attention to detail to something that you want to achieve in your product. And it's something that we strive to do. We spent a lot of time talking about internal uh, makeup of our product, uh, something we call the pathways for fl fluidics and the pa that, that the user will never see, but to us are incredibly important from a function point of view, from a form point of view. Um, what I also have realized though is there are infinite amount of details in a product. And there does come a time in a startup where you need to concentrate on the details that give the most value to the user. So we think packaging is incredibly important, both from a point of view from an environmental point of view, but also from the user uh, being able to experience the Nebbia when they, they get their packaging and they open it. And that's why we spent a lot of time working and developing our packaging, and we still are. On the actual product, we've spent, I can tell you, for there's a button on the wand that we use, and uh, I have 20 versions of that button on my desk that we've taken off and put on and tested with a lot of people. And that's, that's something that's a touch point we think people are going to use every day and is incredibly important. But we've also been trying to be very diligent in that you can spend hours on every detail and every decision. And there comes a point at a startup where if you do that, you run out of runway or you never deliver your product. And I think what is really important in hardware is being diligent and spending time on the details that are really important. And in that clip, they talk about that piece of tape and that unboxing experience. That is an important detail. It seems mundane, that piece of tape, but getting a product and having that unboxing experience be amazing is part of the experience. And I think it's, it's worthwhile to spend time there. I think where people can get in a lot of trouble is spending time on details uh, that in a generation one product could cause you weeks or months of delays. Um, enemy, the enemy of, of delivering a product is really trying to deliver a perfect product. And I think you see this with Apple, every successive version of the phone or the iPad is better. And they could have never delivered you know, the, the current iPhone in generation one. It took them a decade to get there. So it's really important to make these decisions about which of these details you decide to sweat. How do you do this? Um, I'm going to play a clip from Marissa Mayer when she was at Google, where she was talking about how they uh, collect data and how they uh, use data for assessing these, these important decisions. And I'd love to get your thoughts. Eric, Larry, Sergey, all the executives want to drill down and they want to hear about the numbers. You can't walk in and, and say to Larry or Sergey, most people are having a hard time finding this or ha most people are having a hard time working this feature because their immediate question is, how many people did you test? How many people had problems? How was the task you know, set up? They really want to drill down into the data. But the interesting, pro the, the interesting property this has is that it makes Google, even as large as we've gotten, I think that the internal politics inside of Google have remained minimal compared to other corporations of its size. Because we rely so much on the data and we do so much measurement that you don't have to worry, will your idea get picked because 
you're the favorite or will someone else's good idea get picked because they're the favorite or because they have a better relationship with the person who's the decision maker. The decisions get made based on data and that really frees people from a lot of those types of concerns. Right? You know, when I do user interface design, you know, a designer will come to me and say, well, there's this green on the interface and there's that green on the interface or we could lay it out this way or that way. And we don't need to make an arbitrary decision because we'll just run both of them on the site in what we call split A-B testing, where we give some users one experience, some users the other experience, watch the data and the metrics that come out of that, and it will be able to scientifically and mathematically prove which one users seem to actually be responding to better. So we're blessed because we have a really large user base and we can do things like that, but I think it also has a really nice property in that the decisions and the way people relate to each other is a lot less political. What kind of data do you collect? So we have uh, repurposed some of this software A-B testing to do shower A-B testing. <clears throat> it's really hard to get a sample size that is big enough to give X amount of people shower A and uh, X amount of people shower B. But what we have done is side-by-side A-B testing. We, we've spent a lot of time trying to design a shower that is better in every way. And this means introducing different types of nozzles, angling the nozzles differently, spreading them out differently. And what we found is if you go, uh, if you try one shower and then you come back an hour later and try a different shower, it's really hard to compare them. But if you set two showers up side by side and you can walk in between and you, and you ask which one feels better, which one has better temperature, which one is, is softer on your skin, and you can walk in between the two, you can actually very accurately describe which one you prefer. So we do Nebia versions of A-B testing where we set up two different shower heads side by side and we ask users, oftentimes uh, employees at Nebia, to take showers sometimes once, sometimes twice a day. And they walk in between these two prototypes and they give their opinion on a bunch of different questions, which one is better. And that's how we've used, that's what we've used to narrow down what is, in our opinion, the best possible shower to deliver to the market. Uh, and we also do this on a larger scale by going to gyms and putting showers in gyms and having people test them you know, with a little more traditional A-B testing. And we see how they rate different shower and nozzle configurations. Very cool. Sounds like good, clean fun. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't call back. <laughs> Okay. That's awesome. <laughs> it's good, clean, fun. Okay, cool. So I, um, the, when I first got introduced to Nebia, it was when you did a crowdfunding campaign and had this fabulous video yeah. and were raising money. How, how did crowdfunding fit into your whole plan of launching the venture? Yeah, for us, crowdfunding was um, useful in, in many ways. One, it was getting the word out there. We really truly believed that this would be a successful product if we had consumers who believed in us. This was something that we wanted to get directly to consumers. We wanted to prove that there was a market for a better experience, more beautiful design and water uh, efficient shower. And crowdfunding allowed us to do that before we shipped products to a store, um, which is very expensive and costly. It also allowed us to pre-sell a certain amount of units so when we went to our manufacturers and our manufacturing partners, we could say, we want to build 15,000 units. And when you're building tools that range from 10,000 to $100,000, um, it, it makes a huge difference to say, I know that I'm going to at least get 15,000 
parts off of that tool. And for us, we expect to get much more. But it was very useful to be able to go to our manufacturing partners and be like, we know that in 2016, we need at least 15,000 units. And if we can build, we want even more. And that's very difficult to do before you've launched. And it's hard to launch without a product. So it helps you take care of this catch-22. And we were able to show our manufacturing partners, we have demand, you want to work with us, you want to invest the time and effort to make Nebbia and help introduce this product to the world. Did you also find that this was important for you to validate that there was a market? Was this sort of a, a way to test test in the world? I mean, if people had come back and nobody funded your campaign, that would have been a pretty interesting uh outcome. Absolutely. Um, and, and the validation was incredible. And it was wonderful to see the outpouring of people interested in the product and who purchased the product. I will state that we spent a lot of time before the campaign trying to validate that people were interested in this. 500 people showered with a version of Nebbia before we even launched our Kickstarter campaign. And to us, that was really important. We didn't want to go into the Kickstarter campaign without at least some early validation that there were people out there who were excited about what we were doing had experienced uh, the prototype and and thought it was wonderful. I think getting p- your first validation in crowdfunding is very dangerous because it's you're laying it all out there. There are much more efficient ways early on to talk to uh, your your consumers, to talk to possible consumers before you get to crowdfunding. And I think we did that well. And the validation in crowdfunding was amazing, and it, it has helped us, you know, both try to get this product to market and recruit. When I think of the product, there seem to be two very different messages. One is this is environmentally friendly. This is going to save the planet. On the other is this is a much better experience than your shower. Is one of those more important than the other? I think about like Tesla, right? This example where it's, you know, it's a green product, but it's also pretty cool to drive. Which of these is more important or are both of them really tied together? I think both of them are incredibly tied together. And Tesla is an example we use internally all the time. If you're gonna build the best car in the world, it should be electric. There's really no question that I don't think anyone's gonna debate that. In our opinion, if you were gonna redesign the shower and build the best shower in the world, it would be more efficient. You wouldn't wanna waste resources when you didn't need to. So for us, this idea of a better experience and a shower that conserves water aren't uh, going against each other. They're actually part of how do you design the best shower in the world. So I'm going to play one more clip. And this is a clip about category design. Mm -hmm. Because I've recently become familiar with this concept of category design. This is not just a new product in an existing category. You're defining a brand new category. And I'd love to get your insights on whether you think this is actually a shower or it's something else. And eventually, someone will go out and say, I'm going to buy a Nebbia, as opposed to saying, I'm going to go buy a shower head. This is a clip from Mike Maples, who's a huge fan of the concept of category design. Category kings, they don't just make something to sell to people. They introduce the world to a new category of product or service. Category kings, they replace our point of view from what we understood yesterday to what we now believe. And ultimately, they change how people and businesses spend money. Here are some examples. When I was a kid, people didn't pay multiple dollars for a cup of coffee. But Starbucks convinced me and a whole bunch of people to rethink our spending habits as it related to coffee. Amazon web services, right? Not just a service, a whole new category. Um, 
there weren't any digital music players that would play thousands of songs in your pocket before the original iPod. In fact, I would argue that Jobs' great genius in his second act was he invented three new categories. The, the digital music player, the smartphone, and the tablet. Um, I, this is a, an example I kind of like Elvis. So Elvis, Elvis changed our point of view from jazz on steroids to rock and roll. You know, so Elvis defined the category of rock and roll. Um, category kings usually capture 70 to 80% of the profit pool in a, in a given market. These guys, I think, are doing some really interesting work. Um, uh, Playbigger.com, uh, Christopher Lockhead, Al Ramadan um, uh, have been friends for a long time. Uh, they're going to come out with a book pretty soon that talks about category design, but I think their website does a good job of um, talking about some of these issues. I, b I believe that uh, category design is going to become an increasingly prevalent topic in how people think about uh, building value uh, in, their, in their startups. So is Nebbia a brand new category, or is it just a new type of showerhead? We think it is a new category, and we an internal goal for us is in a decade, people go go to their Home Depot, go where they buy a shower, and they either buy a Nebbia-style shower or the old-style shower. And the way we like to look at it, and um, in the clip you played, uh, we talk about a cup of coffee. In the morning, so many of us will walk out of our way to get that perfect cup of coffee, whether it's Phil's or Blue Bottle. You'll happily go two blocks out of your way to work, or you'll drive out of your way to get that, that cup of coffee because it's so important to your morning ritual. I'd argue your shower is as important or more important to your morning ritual. And if you ask someone, they will say, yeah, my morning isn't complete without a shower, or my workout isn't complete without a great shower. But then you ask them, well, what shower head do you have? And their response usually is, I don't know the brand, it, it came with my house. You can change a shower head almost as easily as you can change a light bulb, but people aren't going out there and buying themselves uh, something that is truly enjoyable and wonderful. And if you're willing to go out of your way every morning to get the right cup of coffee, shouldn't you put a little bit of effort into getting a shower head that will be a wonderful experience for those 10 minutes every morning? When you're thinking about your day and uh, you, you don't have emails coming in, you don't have text messages coming in, don't you want to be standing under something that's beautiful, something that feels wonderful? And if you're going to buy a new shower, it should be more efficient. That is really cool. And I can't wait to try it. We hear a lot about product design and really innovative product design, but a lot of it is in the space of software where people can use lean methodologies and get things out really fast and iterate and get feedback. How different is it designing a hardware product than a software product? It's incredibly different. I think one of the uh, things that is particularly hard is not just the iteration and prototyping phase, which you can do pretty quickly now. There's 3D printing. There's ways to quickly prototype that you couldn't do a decade ago. But something that hasn't changed a lot is ramping up operations, going from one or two products to thousands of products. And that's something that it still takes months and months to do. There is, there is no magic bullet new technology where you can go from, oh, I have one, now I want to build 10,000. And one of the things that uh, I don't think you get the chance to get wrong in hardware is that transition from one to 10,000. It's really expensive. As I mentioned, building tools cost a lot, the amount of engineering effort you need, and the amount of different people you need to buy into your product. So not just your own team, 
but your manufacturing partner, the vendors who make individual components. For us, there are 15 or 20 different companies invested in what we are trying to make, whether they're assembling it, whether they're making individual components, or whether they're Nebbia itself. So one of the big differences for me, and it's something that we watch very closely, is how do we go from, we have two beautifully working perfect units right now, how do we go to 400 a day, which is where we're trying to get by the end of the year? So between you and me, we're old friends. What are the biggest challenges that you're facing? And uh, what have you learned through this experience? Yeah, I think... Uh, and I think you probably hear this from a lot of your former students who do startups. The ups and downs of startups are really hard. And having, um, having a team working with you at your company and a, and a personal support network to help you through those ups and downs. You can go from being on cloud nine, having a prototype that works incredibly well one day, to facing a challenge that you think you will never be able to ship a, a device the next day. And I think that that's unique to startups, that up and down in one day or in an hour is something that you have to be able to be even keeled and approach with an amazing team and an amazing network uh, every day. So if you were going to go and start over again, <laughs> go back to the beginning. How many years has it been? Uh, it's been a year and a half now with Nubia. Okay. So you're going back, flashback a year and a half. Mm -hmm. You're starting over. What would you do differently? Uh, I wouldn't do hardware. No, I'm just kidding. I, I love making physical products, although hardware definitely is hard. Um, I think we did really well at concentrating and really, really focusing on what needs to be done, what is nice to have, and what really needs to be done to make a, tra a transcendental, a really incredible product. I would tell myself a year and a half ago that you can do it even more. You can concentrate even more and really ask yourself the question more often, what do we need to do to make this an incredible product? And what is a nice to have? Because I, I truly believe in hardware, you really get one chance. If you deliver your first product and it's not, wow, it's not incredible, you don't get a chance to go to a second product. And making sure that all of our effort is concentrated on delivering that first magical product um, is something that I would tell uh, Gabe a year and a half ago very clearly that that's what you need to do. Well, I'm so impressed with what you've accomplished so far. Can't wait to try it out. And thank you so much for sharing your incredible experiences and insights. Absolutely, Tina. Thank you for having me. And thank you for all of the learnings that I got in Mayfield. I can tell you that they get applied almost every day. And it's really wonderful. We actually have a Mayfield intern this summer who's been fantastic. Fabulous. Thanks so much. This podcast is brought to you by Stanford eCorner and the Stanford Technology Ventures Program, the Entrepreneurship Center at Stanford School of Engineering. Our Innovation Lab story producer is Deanna Batizadigan, and the technical producer and editor is Eli Shell. Our digital solutions manager is Sarah Khan, and our software developer is Davor Senkovich. Our designer is Daniel Stusi, and communications and marketing are led by Mike Pena and Monica Jort. You can find additional podcasts, videos, and articles at ecorner.stanford.edu including our acclaimed Entrepreneurial Thought Leaders podcast. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at eCorner.